Love these stories in the outback. Of course, our city slickers have never had a chance to go and travel like Trevor Ta- Trevor Tuff has been doing for so many years now. It's been a long time, hasn't it, with outback graves? Uh, we're up to about eight or nine years now. That's amazing. Mm. And you came on the program here eight nine, eight years ago to talk uh, about. Not, I not can't quite. remember. But this I think is you the thirty first time that I've been <laughs> oh, on your show. You're not counting, though, are you? <laughs> well, I do. That's how I don't get them mixed. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know you do. It's great to have you here, Trevor. And you're back for Christmas because you had a big trip a little while ago didn't you yes we did uh, we went right up through the pilbara and gascoigne and murchison huge golf fields yeah absolutely brilliant. brilliant okay just to revise what you do actually you put plaques on the graves that have been unmarked that's right and we've got a really good research team they they make sure all our facts and dates and spellings are correct and every one of the uh, graves we mark they probably put in two or three hours of research yeah and how then can, we make the plaque. Can I ask you, if you find an unmarked grave, how do you know to where, where to even start to find about who's there and what the story uh, is? Sometimes we get some anecdotal stories from the local stations uh, or books. A lot of the old uh, history books of Western Australia are fabulous. They, they what, give us a lot of ideas. What, when you say ideas, they tell you where there's some unmarked graves. Yeah, they tell the stories of so-and-so oh. who perished out, you know, 15 miles from wherever. So it, you mm. sort of become a bit of a pioneer explorer, don't you? Oh, yes, and <laughs> one of our researchers, uh, Christine, has got a whole library of, of Western Australian history books. When you read and hear about their, or learn about their stories, you, you can imagine yourself from that era, can't you? Oh, yes. Living in that... It was outback. hard going. Oh, gosh, hard yes, of course it would have been. Yeah. Okay, now, 400 plaques for the next Goldfields yeah, trip in April. That's in April, and uh, our people in Geraldton will be doing a Murchison trip in December to mark some graves at Murchison House Station and some other uh, properties. And uh, only last week we made contact and are starting to work with the Shire of Cranbrook. And the CEO there used to be at the Shire of Leonora, so she knows our work well and is keen to address some unmarked graves in their cemeteries. Oh, that's interesting. And so our researchers are right on to it already. They love a new... Uh, yeah, exciting new area to take over. Cranbrook, South? Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. You're covering everything, yeah. aren't you? Okay, go for it. And uh, we continue to get some really nice comments and feedback from Curtain Radio listeners, including some ex-neighbours and friends of uh, ours from our broom days. So my thanks goes out to all those Curtain Radio followers who enjoy our stories yeah. and for passing on their kind thoughts. That's wonderful. Tell us about Herbert Perry Hatton. Right. He was the young son of John Hatton a hotel keeper at Laverton and his wife Annie and uh, little Herbert was aged only five years and nine months when he died of Bright's disease on the 5th of January 1909 and Bright's disease is a disease of the kidneys which usually follows an infection elsewhere in the body in the throat or skin caused by the streptococcus bacteria and of course in those days they didn't have any effective treatment for infection, so little Herbert uh, didn't have a chance. No, very sad. A lot of babies. Young children died very young. They did, babies. Yeah. yeah, that's true, for obvious reasons. William Frederick Edward Milton. Oh, he's an uh, interesting guy. He was, he was aged 33 and he was a medical practitioner, a doctor in Menzies. And he had previously been a surgeon on a P&O cruise ship 
and you can't imagine uh, anything more different than you know, a cruise ship to uh, Menzies and, uh, and he died in Typhoid on the 9th of January 1897. I tried to visualise a cruise ship back in those days. Yeah. My gosh. Sailing ships. Oh, sailing, of course. John, is it Cagey or Case? Case, Case. Case. Case yeah. Yep. And he was a minor aged 45. He'd been treated in Laverton Hospital for a few weeks for granulated eyes. On the 17th of October 1911, he had told Dr Mitchell that two men had wrongly accused him of taking a picture from a magazine, an accusation that both men denied. I'm not sure what happened, whether he tore it out or what. Oh, must have, yeah. Anyway, the next day, uh, Case had attacked and stabbed both these men with a pocket knife. He was restrained and the police called and they proceeded to take him to the lock-up. The next evening, Case was found in his cell, having died of strangulation after tying a length of blanket around his own neck. Dr Mitchell believed his action of killing himself was the action of a madman. Mm. And I hope people can uh, accept that we tell the stories from the reports and, yes, in the language didn't. of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping so, that that's not I yours. So, yeah. Your Pe- wording. People weren't uh, quite so precious. <laughs> no, they Politically weren't. correct. Straight to the then. point. Ellen Walsh. Yes, yeah, she was a housewife and a mother who died at age 29 at Burtville near Laverton of gastritis and heart failure. It was the 20th of February in 1911, early Tuesday morning when John Walsh of Burtville went to check on why one of his children was crying. He found his wife Ellen had died in the night and she was rigid. She had been ill for some weeks. Her corpse was taken to Laverton Morgue where the same Dr Mitchell gave a certificate stating that she had died from natural causes. So John was left with two young children to mourn their loss. Have you come across some of their descendants at all? Uh, sometimes we have, yeah. I often wonder what happened to these little kids in the single parents because there's no safety nets. No, oh gosh, no, of course not. for them in those days. Now, the pioneers were very able people, weren't they? They were, yes, and many of our pioneers were uh, could turn their hand to a variety of jobs and roles. And one, su- one such man was John Edward Paul, and he was born in Adelaide about 1868, and he died at the age of 76 in Walluna on the 2nd of November 1944. He had arrived in Western Australia from Adelaide in the 1880s, and he opened a saddlery business in Kew. In Meekathara, he was secretary of the Meekathara Hospital and the Meekathara Vermin Board. So he was quite a casual yeah, bloke. very much. And then when he came to Waluna, he was employed at the Lakeway Butchery. So he was a bloke who'd done all sorts of things in his How lifetime. How did he pass away? Uh, well, he was quite old. Well, oh, well, at that, uh, mind quite, you, quite that's sort of a bad age back then. Is. 76. 76. But back in those days. I've seen 76 in another week or so. Just check your pulse, <laughs> will you? I will, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, look in the mirror and say quite old. <laughs> we don't look anymore. John Henry St- uh, Scott, not Scott, Scott. Yeah. Yep. Well, just after midnight on Monday the 6th of May 1935, John Henry Scott, a single man aged about 26, and he was a truck driver employed by Mr W Wharton, he was knocked down by a motorcycle and killed on the main mine road near his home at Red Hill in Waluna. Information to hand discloses that Scott was riding home in a taxi from town driven by Mr M Laylaw. When opposite the home of Mr Wharton where Scott resided, the taxi stopped and Scott alighted on the near side. 
he paid his fare and walked around the back of the car where he was struck by a motorcycle owned and ridden by Mr Stephen Colin Blackman. I'm a Blackman. Are you? Yeah. Well, blimey. My family maiden name is Blackman. Could be one of yours. My grandparents were Blackman from England. Are they wild motorbike riders? Oh, I don't know. I can't check on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Anyway, poor old uh, Mr Scott was uh, killed mm. instantly. Blackman, who sustained a fractured skull, is still dangerously ill in hospital. At the inquest, Dr Johnson presented a certificate to show that Colin Blackman was not fit to give evidence and he would not be for some time. Evidence was given that the night was dusty and visibility bad. Laylor, the taxi driver, gave evidence and stated that there was no electric lighting where he stopped, but it was moonlight and his car was idling and had all lights burning. The dust hung heavily in the air. Scott had been drinking but was not drunk. The coroner went on to hear evidence from other passengers in the taxi and eventually decided, I want to hear from Colin Blackman. He is a very material witness. Sergeant Cooney replied, I'm advised that he's well physically but not mentally. He's just been taken to Perth for expert treatment. The coroner stuck to his wishes and adjourned the hearing sine die, instructing the sergeant to keep in touch with Blackman. So I imagine that the outcome remained in limbo and probably still is in limbo. Um, well, I'm going to check on my family history here. Yeah. <laughs> now, a sudden death in a motor, well-known shearer. Yes, uh, this story came uh, from page two of the Northern Times in Carnarvon on Saturday the 30th of October 1915. And it, uh, it's about a bloke called Fred Wilson. A tragically sudden death occurred on last Sunday, about 14 miles above Dorawara Station. On Sunday morning, Mr Frank Kerwin left town with three shearers, Dan Morrison, Jack Mallon and Fred Wilson. The latter had been at Bride House for the shearing and was going to Yalbalgo Station for the shearing there. The party had breakfast on the other side of Coburn's shearing shed and Wilson, who appeared to be suffering from the effects of drink, merely had a drink of tea and could not eat anything. Sounds like hangover. Yeah, yeah, very yes. much. <laughs> after leaving Dorawara, Wilson seemed to be sleeping, but after going about 14 miles, he was noticed to turn a nasty colour, and Mr Kerwin pulled up under a bush. Wilson's head almost immediately afterwards seemed to fall back, and he was dead before they had time to get him out of the car. He appeared to pass away very easily, with no spasmodic working of the limbs or anything to indicate pain. Isn't that a marvellous bit of reporting? <laughs> yeah, Reporters nowadays don't do that for a job. <laughs> no, true. The body was brought onto the rabbit-proof fence and left there in the hut, while Mr Kerwin motored on to Gascoigne Junction and informed Constable Cunningham of the occurrence. All indications pointed to a death from heart failure, and Constable Cunningham, having obtained an order from Mr J. Phillips, JP, went down on Monday morning to make arrangements for the burial of the body. So this is yet another lonely grave we have identified along the rabbit-proof fence. On our last Pilbara trip, we marked the grave of Andrew Feely, who was a foreman on the fence who died aged 38 of inflammation of the bowels on the 15th of March 1906. His grave was marked by his mother and properly developed with a marble headstone and wrought iron surrounds. It is a very lonely grave, about 20 kilometres in off the Pardue to Port Edlin Road. Another very lonely grave we have marked along the rabbit-proof fence is that of a man named Sappho Halls, 
who died of thirst walking alone from one station to another in late January 1905. Oh, that would have been hot, yeah. Many men in those days had no money and no transport, so they simply walked from property to property looking for work. You can imagine in it that in late January the temperature must have been terribly hot for him. Sappho died at the 299-mile peg on the fence line. You might ask, 299 miles from where? Well, it was 299 miles or 500 kilometres in the, in the modern money from Burracoppen. We managed to find the place and place a plaque, but we were unable to find the remnants of his actual grave. It was one thing to find the record of this bloke, but quite another to find the location of the 299-mile peg. It was about 27 kilometres in from the road following along the fence line. So there are stories of three graves we've marked, about 1,500 kilometres apart along the rabbit-proof fence. In- incidentally, we also marked... Uh, graves of two men who were murdered by snowy rolls on oh, the right. uh, rabbit-proof fence. Can you drive your vehicles along alongside the rabbit-proof fence? Can uh, a lot of them you can. They've uh, yeah. changed it now yeah. to really a dog-proof fence. Oh, okay. So a vermin-proof yeah, fence, yeah, and they, they maintain... Dingoes and yeah. so forth. Yeah. Now, we have to move along. More done. Yeah, she was a little girl that was born 50 miles from Boulia in Queensland, and she was the daughter of Florence Dunn and John Hawkins, a kangaroo hunter. And she died on the 31st of October 1904, aged one year and 14 days. And she died at Fossil Down Station near Fitzroy Crossing. She was buried at Fossil Down Station by Robin and Ellen Bell. Her death certificate was uh, certified in writing by her father, John Hawkins. Maud's mother, Florence, also had two other daughters, both deceased. And she had a son, Ernest Dunn, who died on the 2nd of March 1906, aged five weeks at Nookenbar Station. So poor Florence yeah, had lost four sad. children. Yeah, I don't know how you get common. over that. No. And Fossildown Station was settled by the MacDonald family in 1884 after a momentous overland journey with about 2,000 cattle from northern New South Wales. In 2015, on our very first trip for Outback Graves, we placed five plaques at Fossildown Station and we were hosted by Annette Henwood, the last of the MacDonald family, to own the station. She guided us to the location of the original homestead and with her help we attached the plaques to a boab tree. And the ones we marked, the pioneers we marked, were Michael Barry, a station hand aged 26, who died of influenza on the 5th of October 1893. Maud Dunn, a little girl whose story I just told you, who died in October 1904. Joseph Daru, a stockman aged about 25, who died of malaria on the 1st of June 1910 and he was born at Bow Desert in Queensland and I'll tell you a little bit more about malaria in a while. Munro mm-hmm. Martin, aged 9, died at Fossil Downs on the 8th of June 1916 and John West, a labourer aged 30, died of natural causes on the 26th of May 1923. Incredible. Tell us about malaria. Well, we've, we've been marking quite a few graves uh, prior to 1920 and after that almost nothing so it caused me to start looking at why malaria disappeared out of Australia Mm. and the malaria antigen was recently detected in Egyptian remains dating from 3200 BC so that's 5000 years ago so it's a very old disease in humans the parasites which are transmitted by mosquitoes they grow and multiply first in the liver cells and then in the red cells of the blood 
The first case in Australia was recorded in Queensland in 1867. We've marked lots of graves from the 1880s where the deaths were caused by this disease, but virtually none from about 1920s onwards. Mary Jurek died at Argyle Down Station in the Kimberley, aged 50, from malaria on the 19th of November 1886 while attending to other victims of the same disease. Many Thai pioneers died along the Ord and Fitzroy rivers. And I was amazed to find out that World War I had quite a hand in, in the eradication. And in World War I, it is indicated that at least one and a half million soldiers were infected with case fatality of up to 5%. It seems the disease was already present across Western and Eastern Europe, but the deployment of large numbers of troops from tropical Africa and India introduced into the European theatre a large humid reservoir of infections with new parasite strains carried by semi-immune soldiers. The Australian Defence Force had its first encounter with malaria at Gallipoli in 1915, although only a few cases. By the end of World War I, our army had experienced the true impact of malaria, with half of the Desert Mounted Corps in Palestine incapacitated by malaria, with over 100 deaths attributed to it. The armed forces experience prompted a huge research effort on both sides of the conflict. By 1918, the effective prevention measures and treatment with quinine were established and recognised. In Australia's case, it led almost to the eradication of the disease, but in the rest of the world, the statistics are still astounding. In 2021, 247 million cases of malaria were recorded worldwide, resulting in 619,000 deaths. Incredible. Mm. Africa was home to 95% of the cases and 96% of the deaths. Children under five accounted for about 80% of all malaria deaths yeah. in the region. Incredible. That's about half a million children that, a year. That's incredible, isn't it? How long, Amazing. how far back it started, yeah. your malaria. So that's our 15 stories today. It didn't do bad. Hands. No, you kept us in thrall. We love it all. Good on <laughs> you. That's fantastic, Trevor. And we're going to finish with the great song from Lee Forster, Our Back Raves. Curtain, lady.